0: Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help
1: you master real estate syndication. And now, your host, Whitney Sewell. Bedford's Cost Segregation specializes in generating significant tax savings via their engineering based studies for commercial real estate clients nationwide. Founded in 2002, Bedford is one of the largest independently owned cost segregation providers in the country with over 14,000 studies completed to date in multiple offices throughout. The most important decision ownership can make when incorporating cost segregation within their real estate portfolio is selecting the right provider. With only 43 certified cost segregation professionals nationwide, Bedford is proud to employ eight of them and takes the quality of their people as seriously as their studies. Every certified cost segregation professional has passed a rigorous test combining knowledge of technical engineering issues, legal tax issues, ethics standards, and requires a strict level of prior work experience to be eligible. Bottom line, not all cost segregation providers are created equal. So be sure to take the decision seriously from the beginning to protect yourself for years to come. Please contact Bedford's Business Development Director, Frank Judici, to learn more. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I am your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Michael Becker, but it is a continuation of yesterday's show. We were having a great conversation. He is such a powerhouse in our industry and has been so successful, so it's been a great conversation. It went a little long, though, so we decided to split it up into two days. Also, had some computer difficulties, and so we split the show, but I hope you have enjoyed these episodes with him as we talk through many things about the issues in Texas right now. Now, through the unexpected cold weather and freezing that they had and you know having 300 units that have issues and tenants that have issues with no power and water and all those things so i hope you are enjoying this show and i hope you are learning a lot and growing your business whether you are a passive investor or an operator either one i hope you are learning a lot reach out to me if i can help you in any way you can always email us info at lifebridgecapital.com if you have any feedback i would be very grateful have a blessed day and enjoy the show all right i thought we could just- just roll right into how this has helped you prepare for a downturn or what you've learned and then moving forward Just and how you prepare for a downturn in general. So, yeah, Whitney, ever since we kind of got
0: into the second part of 2020, uh, you know, we were the first cover really kind of on the transactional side on the investment sales side, really kind of killed all the momentum that we kind of had going into 2020. It was a you know really good first two months of the year for us personally and a lot of people I know. Then all of a sudden, everything kind of ground to a halt in March and we kind of took 90 to 120 days off. And then June, July, came back around and started kind of seeing a little trickle. And then towards the latter part of the third quarter, and really kind of the fourth quarter of 2020 to now, it's been kind of back like business as usual in a lot of ways. I mean, the interest rates are quite a bit lower than what they were. I know here in real time, they're kind of creeping up, at least on the long end of the curve. The 10-year treasury's kind of tick back up a little bit, which is probably going to, if that keeps going, that'll probably have some level of impact at some point. It really hasn't yet. Pricing, but seemed like that the fourth quarter trades really didn't weren't very impacted very much by COVID. I mean, the cap rates were pretty much the same, even though the interest rates were down, you know, probably a third, maybe more from what they were kind of going into the lockdowns. And it kind of seemed like to me, we bought two or three deals kind of post-COVID in 2020 and felt like we we're getting pretty good buys. We we're getting really good loans and our cash on cash was better because our in- our debt was just better. Our interest rates were better and kind of felt like as we were entering or finishing up 2020, it felt like either one or two things were going to have to happen. Either interest rates were going to go up or Cap rates were gonna go down. And as we are in 2021, now we'll set a deal late last year, set two deals late last year. We closed one about a week ago and closing one this week. So we're gonna have a second skin on the wall this year. And then real time right now, as I'm looking, we have a 1031 we're trying to go place. Real time right now, it feels like cap rates are compressing and you know, pricing is going up. And it's just we have all these different market participants coming in, you know, well, all the same people that have been here are still here. A bunch of extra people coming in from both of the coasts, really trying to come to the Texas market. I'm sure Florida, Arizona, Carolinas, I'm sure they're getting their fair share as well. And then we're starting to see some other people that traditionally have played in the hospitality office and retail space. Those are kind of generally uninvestable, especially on an institutional basis right now. So a lot of that money is flowing into multifamily and industrial. So it feels like in real time right now, first quarter, 2021, 2021, we are seeing cap rates compressed, prices accelerating. That's kind of what it feels like right now.
1: So Michael, you know, I'd love for you to answer this. I ask every operator that comes on the show and just from your level of experience, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. But being prepared for a downturn, How do they prepare for a downturn? What is it that's like non-negotiable things for you? But even going through this last year, maybe you can speak to some things that you already had in place beforehand that helped you to be affected as little as possible through a pandemic. And then even moving forward, maybe things that have changed or things you put in place since then.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think some of the things that really were helpful, that really helped us the last 12 months you know, one. I think we kind of were on a mission of selling kind of old by new, so we of transition out of some older, tougher stuff that we had. We never really had much in high crime locations. That was always something I was really particular about on location. So, but the delinquency, that, you know problems that we did have, they were a little bit more concentrated within the more of the workforce housing. So that proved to be a little bit wise or helpful from a collection standpoint. I'm not saying that I think people that had, you know, good located, well-maintained workforce housing, I don't think they really had too many problems, but, you know, they did have a little bit more delinquency issues there. Making sure we had the good, proper management teams in place. I felt really good that we tested the management teams and they handled it really well. Extremely proactive, you know, asking for money every day, (laughs) you know, basically knocking on doors and continuing to ask for some money. And that was really helpful. You know, I like most people working with some payment plans for the residents, making sure they had resources to get all the state and local and charities in these various places, kind of help them with some rental assistance until the government programs really started kicking in just now. And then obviously, in addition to that, my firm, a partner, and I. We did a rent relief fund and we probably put up, you know, 60, 70,000 of our own money. And then we had some of our investors pitch into that. So we'd help some residents to pay a portion of the rents as well. So that kind of really helped keep some of these people that otherwise are good residents, just kind of hit a little hard spot. They helped those people kind of get through it for a few months. So I felt pretty good about that. And then kind of, you know, just structurally the way we set these deals up. we first started out, we had a lot of fixed rate mortgages, So, you know, we didn't really have any kind of rate risk on those. It turned out to be a bad decision because rates kept going down and down and down. Last, you know, two or three years, we did a lot of adjustable rate mortgages. And those deals really, really have shined the last 12 months. So, Whitney, because LIBOR went from, you know, 2% to 0.15%. So, you know, we got, you know, almost 200 basis points or 2% of interest savings in some cases on these deals. And so, you know, our interest rates got cut like in half in a lot of cases, and it really, you know, at the time where you were a little worried about the durability of your income and actually being able to collect some money as extremely helpful. So, you know, some of these deals were, were just basically printing money. I mean, we're making more money today than we ever have. It's just a function of that our, our debt service is cut in half. So that was extremely helpful. Lessons learned. I mean, I think if you take the floating rate, you know, having maybe a little bit lower leverage. I think that certainly is helpful because, you know, it went in my favor this time, but it could go against me another time. But, you know, generally, if you're in a recession, the Fed is going to cut rates. They don't really raise rates in economic stress. They raise rates when the economy is going, you know, well and booming. So if you hit a recession, having to adjust for a mortgage, in theory, you should see rate cuts and see some relief within your amount you have to pay. And, you know, very communicative with all the lenders. Fortunately, we didn't need to really. Get anything from the lenders at the end of the day, but you know, at the front, it was at the front end of the deal. It was like, are we going to have to get in forbearance? And you know, no one really knew. Being really proactive about collecting money, you know, setting the deal up right, not being over leveraged, and making sure we had a proper working capital. You know, we had early in my career a couple of the deals we did. We never had any major issues, but we came in maybe a little light on some working capital on a handful of deals. Those deals always kind of, you know, just a little bit harder to get through your business plan. You don't really have the margin for error. So after making that kind of minor mistake a few times, every deal we do now, we come in, you know, with an abundance of working capital. So we have enough money to do everything we need to do. Plus, some, you know, just in case money, something that you didn't expect, like the power grid uh, shut down for two days in Texas in the middle of a cold snap (laughs) hits. we have enough money to go fix a bunch of sheetrock and carpets and things like that. So having proper working capital would be something I think that a lot of people... People make a mistake on.
1: I've seen it many times. I've not been in this business near as long as you. But one thing that's very important to us is have that massive reserve budget from day one. Is there a way that you calculate that, a rule of thumb that says, you know what, we want this much proper working capital? Or, you know, is that separate from an emergency fund, or reserve budget?
0: Yeah, I mean you have your capital expenditure budget, which there's gonna be rolled in the loan or you self-escrow. So that's, you know, one thing. So if you self-escrow, it kind of can double up a little bit. So, you know, you have this money to go do a bunch of renovations. But if you hit unexpected issue, you can tap your self-escrowed CapEx. And if it's escrow with a lender, you don't have access to that. So it's a different story. But, you know, usually we try to plug in, you know, $100,000 at minimum. And then on top of that, usually kind of roll in. You know, most of these deals were having two, three hundred thousand dollars. And then when you close, you're generally getting rent prorations and you kind of prepay your first month's interest. So then before you actually make a mortgage payment, you have two two rounds of collections before you actually pay your mortgage bill. So usually your expenses are kind of thirty days in arrears in most cases. So usually most, you know, probably 80% of the money you collect in that first rent check is going to go to your bottom line as well. So, you know, I think if you come in with hundred to 300,000, depending on the size of the deal, I guess there's a smaller deal. You maybe cut that down. I probably should have a better answer than that. I don't really have a rule (laughs) of thumb, but I think about it as, you know, just want to make sure I have plenty of money. Plus I know I'm going to get that first round of collections where I don't really have a lot of expenses. So I'll be able to kind of pad that working capital. And usually we wait two to three months before we start up distributions anyways. So we're getting some additional working capitals kind of built up by just not paying out the distributions for the first two, three months. It's kind of retaining the free cash flow.
1: Yes, and with as many projects as you have, I know something we've debated about, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Like after you've done numerous deals and you have all these reserve budgets, like that's a lot of capital just sitting there right? And you can't intermingle the funds. But is there a way that you found a better use that capital? I mean, as opposed to just millions, literally just sitting there in these accounts? Well, wish you had a better idea. Maybe we should have bought Bitcoin a couple of <laughs> years ago. And that would have, that would have made some right, money. Yeah, it sits there in the
0: checking account. And then, you know, the last, I mean, shoot, almost a whole year now when you get to do any sort of Fannie or Freddie loan, they'll put these COVID reserves on top of it. Right. Yeah, we did a pretty large loan last year and I mean, we had $2.6 million in COVID escrows on top of the normal escrows. And so just sitting there dead money that, you know, it's just, just in case. So it's it's a little bit challenging and it's not earning any interest. Or if you do put in a money market account, you're going to get, you know, 25 basis right. points or something like that. So it's pretty negligible. But I think it's just part of being a prudent owner, just having it. You just got to suck it up a little bit. But yeah, if you, you come up with something genius that doesn't have the risk of the Bitcoin, <laughs> Otherwise, I guess maybe buy some Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, I know you have to abide by your operating agreement, things you've set in place with your investors. But I just wondered, you know, after doing that, meet deals, because that is it's just a lot of capital. My business partner and I've thought about it often. You know, it's just shame all this is sitting there, but you need it. You would need it there in case you need it, right? That's why it's there. But what do you predict, Michael, you know, in the real estate market over the next six to 12 months? And, how, you know, how are you looking at deals or are you looking at them differently than you did, say, a year ago?
0: You know, everything's getting tighter and more challenging, and you know, especially as we're buying nicer stuff. I mean, we're we're being able to compete pretty well with institutions. We've we got a little bit more of the entrepreneurial setup and spirit and go a little quicker than some of these people. So we're able to buy some nice stuff. I'm actually looking at we have a 1031 exchange for a client. Like right now, I'm hoping today to hear back that, We won a seventy-plus million dollar deal down in Austin, and you would probably think I'm crazy, but we're—you know—maybe I am. Maybe this is going to be a terrible mistake about what you're about to do. But we're hopefully going to buy a deal about two high two twenties a door, really brand new deal, real nice, real good part of town. But it's got to be like a sub three cap because their historical operating numbers suck because there were some concessions on this and that. So we're kind of having to work through the numbers and kind of bet on the come a little bit and kind of look at the pro forma a little bit. But, you know, I'm seeing like what replacement cost is. So the developer couldn't put this building on the ground for any less than 250 today. Plus, they got to make a profit on top of that. So I feel like I'm buying it for 20000 or so below replacement cost because the cost has just escalated so much between labor right. and, and lumber at like all-time highs and copper shot up like 6% yesterday. I mean, all these raw materials, the input values are going into, these deals are going up and up and up and up. So I feel like we're buying it below replacement cost. So either the developer's... rents are going to have to rise and concessions go away to make these deals make sense. So the developers are going to stop building because they can't make this make sense. So I can't lose money over and over and again and keep attracting capital. So it feels like it's a pretty good bet because it's going to come. And we have a little different math with the 1031. So that's kind of what we're doing there. And then on the workforce housing stuff, I mean, it's just... Tough to pay the same cap on a workforce housing deal that you can for something that's five years old. Right. I know you got the upside in them, and it seems like that risk is mispriced to me. So it's challenging to make some of these deals make sense. And so we're just trying to find what we think is a relative value to current market and continue to, you know, we put these deals out. You got to produce some level of yield along the way, which is certainly not what it was a few years ago. Make sure you get a proper amount of debt. Don't over leverage a deal. I see a lot of people maybe trying to amp up the leverage, maybe stripping some preferred equity or some mezzanine financing behind it to really kind of increase the leverage and juice the IRR returns for their investors. So trying to stay away from, you know, doing stuff like that. We've never done that. And I'm just trying to stay away from how to recommend other people do and just kind of be really diligent. And, the, you know, I found by doing enough of these deals, Whitney, there's always a deal, you know, there's always a deal relative to current market. How are you willing to work into it? It's a completely unfair business. It's who, you know, what you know, what tips you can trade, You know, people do business with people they know, like, and trust. So if you could get that trust and these brokers to like you because the brokers control the deals, that's kind of really where you find your edge and trying to get in and just look at everything in the market that you're in or, you know, a couple markets that you're in, just look at everything. You need to be looking at everything. And the answer is always when you can't find a deal, the answer is always you got to just do more. You just got to work harder. You got to look at more deals. And eventually one of them is going to make sense. It's going to be a value relative to everything else.
1: What about a couple of daily habits that you're disciplined about that have helped you achieve success? You know, I wish I was a little bit more disciplined and
0: had a morning routine and a lot of stuff like other people do meditate and stuff like that. But, you know, I think that what I do well, Whitney, is I kind of realize where my north is, right? You know, my compass, I know where I want to go. And I'm not perfect, you know. I'll, I'll get distracted. I'll do certain things. I'll kind to of go down a rabbit hole and burn a half an hour, an hour of my life, in the middle of the day, not being very productive. I kind of snap out of it because I know at the end of the day, to do what I do, there's I got a lot of responsibility on me. We got to do a lot of stuff. But at the end of the day, if you do what I do, or what you do for a living, the way you make money is you got to find deals and you got to find capital, right? So find money, find deals, and everything else is sort of noise. You know, it's important. You got to like make sure you get all your K-1s out like we just did and asset manage and deal with breaks if the temperature's close, but low. But I mean, at the end of the day, you got to find deals and find money. So if I find myself doing a bunch of low value tasks, I try to find a way to get that off of me with either a system or an employee or resource or something. So I'm like constantly like snapping myself out of it. If I start wasting time and doing stuff that's not really driving the greater mission of my company, I'll like stop it course correct and just focus on the highest value task. So I think I do a pretty good job about being self-aware and not let myself go too far down the rabbit hole and stuff that doesn't really matter.
1: That's a skill that most struggle with, or maybe everybody does at some point, but that's a great skill to have. And on that... No, you talked about when people say, oh, we can't find a deal and you just have to look more, have to look at more deals, underwrite more deals, all those things. But then you mentioned, you know, about finding investors. What is your best source for meeting new investors right now?
0: Through the podcast, I was a co-host of Old Capital Podcast for the last six years. So probably where you first met me. A lot of people might know me from that. And then uh, kind of my new show, the Multifamily Investor Show, Michael Becker. So I get several people a week off of that. And then 1A is probably just referrals from our existing database, you know, when you do well by people for several years. They refer their friends and family, and kind of goes out from that way. So, wish we were just about to buy, hire a marketing person. I've been kind of doing all this bootstrap without really any professional help. So, I think we're about to find someone to help finally help me kind of do this in a little bit more professional way and be a little bit more strategic about how we go about it. But I think you know, really, if you start now, and if you don't have a podcast or you know, track record, you know, going to local meetups. I think that's about to be a thing again, you know, or we haven't done it for a while now. I think that's about to be a thing again. So you got to get out. I say this last year's kind of challenged my little saying, but I think it's really true at the end of the day. You know, this is a business you can't do 100% behind your, you know, at your house or at your office behind your computer. You got to get out, you got to meet people, you got to network with people, going to conferences, speaking at events, you know, those are just things that you have got to do. So whether whether you have a big track record or not. If you host a little meetup, you know, it's all a relative business. You know, if I've done one deal and you've done zero deals, I'm 100% more experienced than you, even if I've only done one deal. So hosting a meetup, getting some guest speakers in, starting this out, you know, I used to joke with Paul, people is like the co-host of the whole couple podcasts with me. And, you know, when we first started out, we had, you know, dozens and dozens of listeners, you know, like basically no one listening to us. And just kind of over time, it just kind of builds and get a little bit of inertia to it. Now we get... You know, 40, 50,000 downloads a month on, you know, very dry subject like apartment investing and apartment financing. So it's a very niche topic. And just kind of about being consistent, showing up, doing the right things over and over again. And over time, it kind of will work out for you. But those people that aren't consistent, that don't put the work in, they tend to not, you know, get the results that they want. And like, kudos to you doing, you know, 900 shows pretty much every day, right? So it's every day. It is every day. 900 days, almost 900 days now you've been putting content out. And I can promise you from a guy that doesn't do nearly that volume, it's a heck of a lot of work. So kudos to you and you could do one-tenth of what Wendy does, you will probably be pretty successful.
1: (laughs) I appreciate that, Michael. Yeah, it is a great podcast, Old Capital Podcast. That probably is where I first heard you. And then, you know, we've met at the Old Capital event a couple of times. But what is the number one thing that's contributed to your success? You
0: know, like I said, I think I'm pretty self-aware. You know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. Not that I'm dumb, but I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I took a little while to get out of college. You know, I was in college for eight years. My joke is I, I beat Tommy Boy by a year, right? I was kind of list for a little while. or worked full time, went to night school, and I got out. And I, you know, had a sub 3.0 GPA. I think it was like a 2.7 when I graduated. So, but then I got into work. I always had a good work ethic, you know, and then I really just kind of I work hard. I'll focus on stuff. I'll really knuckle down. I don't give up very easily. So, you know, I stick with it. I got a good work ethic. I work hard. So I think some combination of hard work, And just being dumb enough to not give up and just kind of sticking with it. I think that goes a long way in this business. And you know, what I like about the business is really, really simple. You gotta buy a deal, you can produce some cash flow, you know, force some value in it by doing some strategic renovations, you know. So you buy it here, you get good debt on it, get your tenants to pay your your mortgage and all your expenses and get a little cash flow left over. So it's really, really simple. It's not always easy. You got problems, you can mess it up for sure, but know, focus on something that's really, really simple and just kind of do the same thing over and over again. I kind of become a real master at it. So I think the people that get kind of the shiny nickel syndrome where they do, you know, self-storage this day and land development the next day and apartments and mobile homes and Airbnb and all that, all that stuff, never really get good at any one thing. So I found that riches are niches and find your one thing, work hard, focus on it and, you know, make sure it's a simple, understandable business. I think you could be pretty successful, whether it's multifamily or, you know, some other variation of real estate or an operating business at the end of the day, you could be a pizza delivery company or something, as long as you fork hard at it.
1: Some very wise words, Michael, I'm grateful for your time. And it's always an honor to have you on the show, just somebody with your level of experience and expertise, just many great discussions that we've had over the last half hour or so. I'm just grateful to hear just how you have managed all your 6,000 units and 300 that were affected over the last week, but then even the pandemic over the last year, and just how you prepared for that and preparing for a downturn and talking about proper working capital amongst many other things that have allowed you to be successful in this space. So thank you again again how can the listeners get in touch with you and learn more about you
0: the two resources i'll give out right here is you know the new show i started which is the multi-family investing show michael becker so again, that's a highly produced show it's in a studio i try to get pretty high level guests so you know brokers that sell billions of dollars of real estate and owners that own you know thousands if not tens of thousands of units so it's been kind of my new little passion project so you can find that on like i said youtube itunes stitcher where you probably anywhere you hear my voice now or our website is www.multifamilyinvestingshow.com or my company that i run and operate is spi advisory so you can go to our website which is www.spiadvisory.com there's contact us form you fill that out and I'm always happy to send out information if you want to learn a little bit more about us and potentially work with us thank you for listening to the real estate syndication show brought to you by LifeBridge capital